0: On this season, we'll be covering our vehicles of hysteria, how pop culture and the media shape our psychology and society, and how our national mythologies manipulate the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria.
1: See Disneyland, people say, and you've seen America where young and old alike step into a world of make-believe
0: it's magic <laughs> i think we should ditch school and go to disneyland you're serious yeah no we're going to do no. that again
1: oh, oh honey
0: god. we're going again
1: oh my god
0: i'm not sure about you but I had better admit this up front. The truth is that I love Disneyland. I am so ecstatically happy there that it feels almost criminal. It feels almost biological, almost unstoppable. Now, you may not get it. You may have somehow unhypnotized yourself from our collective Disneyfication. But maybe you do get it. Maybe you still sing the enchanted songs from your favorite Disney movies that have somehow almost become like American hymns to each new generation. Here's a little story. I was at Disneyland a few years ago, truly blissed out and dopey-eyed, strolling on a bricked walkway beside a wide bed overflowing with pink and yellow and white flowers, with fantasy land spinning its grand tales all around me, a castle promising a happy kingdom for once." I saw a family approaching me in the shadow of a replica Matterhorn Mountain near the manufactured howl of the wind. Their 10-year-old daughter was wearing a classic Disneyland sneer, you know the one, overstimulated by supernormal stimuli to the point of a public tantrum. As she got closer, a perfect monarch butterfly, a real one, was bouncing through the air toward her with a clumsy grace. When it was directly in front of her, in a moment of pure rage, she raised her arm above her head and tried to slap the butterfly out of mid-air. Luckily, she missed, and the butterfly was only caught in the swoop of the air around it, steadying itself and surviving. Then they headed toward a switchback line, accepting the 45-minute wait to see the animatronic butterflies open and close their huge technicolor wings in the Alice in Wonderland ride. Her anger suddenly turned to glee. In terms of this enormous thing we call Disney, we're not going to be talking much about them as a corporation, of which there are endless things to critique. So as we go along today, let's remember that their unchecked capitalism and drive to make as much money as possible rests in the background. Instead, we're going to dive into the effect of Disneyfication on our culture, how it's softened and brightened our lives and our reality at large, charming us back into innocence and thus to the ignorance of childhood. We'll look at this construction called childhood and how the Disney company hit on some of our deepest biological impulses, whether they meant to or not. Disney has been presenting a reality within a reality since the 1920s. A reality that mimics reality until reality is no longer reality. Make sense? This is a pretty heady episode, and I struggled through a lot of virtually unreadable philosophy for this. I wanted to understand the almost irresistible draw to this cartoon fantasy— and why Mickey Mouse has become an American plush idol to worship. This was and is a place, an entire world, that was first born from the imagination of Walt Disney, a man whose life was marked with tragedy, who in a note pinned to each of his animators' desks, asked again and again that they always keep it cute.
1: If you're familiar with the story of Peter Pan, you know that a little sprinkling of Tinkerbell's fairy dust can make you fly.
0: Walter Elias Disney was born December 5th, 1901, on a Chicago farm to a loving mother and an erratic, sometimes abusive, father. Walt would recall decades later that when his father would rage, he'd hit the kids with a broad side of a saw or the handle of a hammer. With his siblings mostly gone from the farm and his parents always busy with work, the lonely Walt began creating a secret, softer world of his own where the farm animals he tended to were his very best friends. A big old pig named Porker, who Walt was known to ride around on, would be the very first inspiration in his cartoon drawings. But at home, like many great artists, Walt's talents were not encouraged. Decades later, he would recall this exchange with his father.
1: Dad, I don't want to work at the jelly factory. I want to be an artist.
0: His father replying.
1: You can't make a living drawing pictures. You need a real job.
0: While working as a driver for a Red Cross ambulance, Walt and his friend, known only in the annals of history as Cracker, got into the fantasy business. They bought a bunch of German helmets from the Army Surplus Store, added World War I insignia to them, and then shot them full of bullet holes. Cracker would then go down to the Army bases and muse about these helmets and their rare authenticity, selling them for a decent profit to his fellow patriotic Americans. Walt would eventually land a contract job as an animator in 1919 to create short cartoon Laughograms. This work would eventually inspire him to strike out on his own and create his own business with his brother Roy, Laughogram Studios, which created live action films that also included cartoon characters. After a series of failures that landed Walt sleeping in his office and showering at the bus station, Steamboat Willie premiered in 1928, the first mainstream cartoon that had synchronized sound with it. This Mickey Mouse character was a monumental and sudden success, and it would provide the brothers their funding for another decade of films. And then this otherworldly color of Disney films would continue to rocket the business to success throughout the dreary 1930s with smash hits like Snow White and Pinocchio. Though these films were markedly darker than the Disney films of the 1980s and 90s, most were adapted from fairy tales originally marked by extreme gore and sometimes rape. He made them a lot less controversial, far more in line with family-friendly, middle-class, Anglo-American morality. He made them a lot cuter. Disney would secure their status as a patriotic American institution when the company partnered with the U.S. government to produce anti-Nazi propaganda films in 1943, including one where Donald Duck Gets drafted. Disney characters, and most especially Donald Duck for some reason, who the New York Times would call, quote, a salesman of the American way, were printed on wartime goods, war bonds, posters, and even military uniform patches. They Disney fied World War II. They figured out a way to make it Cute. In this same patriotism, Walt would grow steadily more conservative and more anti union, especially after an animator's strike ended in their firing and left Walt feeling betrayed. He would actually ask the new animators to draw the Strikers into Dumbo as troublesome clowns, alongside racist depictions of Black people as lazy crows, with one even named Jim Crow. In terms of Walt Disney, there may be other life experiences that pushed him deeper into this fantasy world first, Walt's wife suffered a series of miscarriages, which admittedly caused him to have a mental breakdown. A couple years before that, after the unprecedented success of Snow White, Walt did as is customary for a son. He bought his parents a house for their 50th anniversary. Not long after they were moved in, Walt's mother complained of the smell of gas coming from the furnace, so Walt had a repairman come by to fix the leak. Soon after, the housekeeper would enter the home one morning, finding both of Walt's parents unconscious. After calling 911, she pulled them both out of the house and onto the front lawn. It was discovered that the leak had not been properly sealed, And Walt's mother would die right there on the lawn. And though his father would survive, he'd die two years later after his relationship to Walt further decayed to the point that he didn't attend the funeral. Walt reportedly blamed himself for what happened and suffered over it for the rest of his life. This has led to speculation that so many Disney films feature parental death or family separation because of this trauma. It starts to make sense, doesn't it, that he might want a softer world.
1: To all who come to this happy place, welcome. Disneyland is your land. Here age relives fond memories of the past.
0: It was 1955 when Walt Disney would take the most outrageous risk of his career, putting his fortune on the line to build a place called Disneyland. At this time, Walt was growing larger than himself, a character as much as Mickey Mouse was, but he was still a human, still a father, and he wanted to make his kids happy, So he let his children drag him to the dingy amusement parks of the 1940s, their dirty, almost gloomy vibe more unnervingly manic than actually happy. He spoke to other parents at those parks who agreed with him, and it planted an idea in his head of a more idyllic amusement park, but one where adults could also get lost in their own childlike imaginations. Walt was building his vision on both the nostalgic past and the technological utopian future. He would meld these two American dreams together into a terrific and enormous honorarium of the glorious American past, one that would appeal to adults' post-war patriotism, and one that would also serve as a beacon of unlimited futuristic potential that he believed would tug at the idealism of this new youth.
1: See Disneyland, people say, and you've seen America. America as it was at the turn of the century, as it will be at the turn of the next one, and as it palpably is today.
0: Walt's first animatronic dream was a replica of Abraham Lincoln, who he imagined gesturing passionately while giving speeches on important days in American history.
1: The world is. Never had a, a good definition of the word liberty. And the American people just now are, are much in want of one.
0: At the same time, animatronics were in the works for Pirates of the Caribbean and the Haunted Mansion and the parrots of the Tiki Room. It was a land of replicas, replicas of nature, of buildings, of people, of animals, and even the dead. It was like nothing anyone had ever seen. Ultimately, Disneyland transformed 160 acres of bright orange groves into a fully enclosed world. And as he said, the happiest place on Earth. Main Street, USA, where all the guests enter, was designed to mimic a typical idyllic Midwestern town in the early 1900s. A replica of life so impossibly happy, so impossibly prosperous, with ice cream shops pumping out the smell of old-fashioned waffle cones, an American dream of a perfect past, leading right through the gates of a magical castle. On his deathbed in 1966, The legend goes that Walt was hallucinating a full map of his new park, 50 times larger, tinkering with the project, his hands in the air above him. Along with Disney World, he had been planning another project too, one called Epcot, or the Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. The Epcot we know today is a lot different than the one dreamed up by Walt, which he saw as a fully enclosed utopian American small town in which almost everything a person could need would be inside a giant climate-controlled futuristic bubble with what he called ideal conditions year-round. He wanted a perfect suburbia cut off from the new American problems, especially the fright of the urban world. The harsh, sharp edges, the bad weather of a cold adult reality. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com americanhysteria American Hysteria 50 and use code American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at Factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today.
1: This episode is brought to you by Visit
0: Williamsburg. When we think of children, a few main characteristics come to mind immediately. Innocent, cute, vulnerable, unknowing, in need of protection— These are all biological imperatives, as adults must have the drive to take care of their young in order to further their genes and their larger communities. But at the same time, this version of childhood as we know it is a relatively new creation. In the 1600s, the Puritans kind of abhorred children, considering them these satanic, bestial, animal-like creatures who had to grow up into Christian adults as soon as possible and leave that uncivilized nature behind. In order to ensure that their kids grew up straight, both morally and physically, they were barred from crawling on the ground, instead placed into wooden stools that kept them in a standing position, their backs straightened with metal rods." Toys to them were of the devil, as was idle play, and pastors instead enjoyed taking children to graveyards so they could look at dead bodies and fear death and thus fear God as soon as possible. And then at six or seven, they began working for their family business or for other families as servants. At the end of the 1800s, it was the Romantic era's novels and poems and art and critiques and philosophy that pushed against the chilliness of new logic and science-based culture, opting instead to honor emotion and with it sentimentality. Following that line of thinking, the Victorian era, starting in the 1830s, would create a culture very focused on the child, on their purity, their innocence, and their imagination. They were suddenly little spiritual icons that meant more than themselves, that meant something about having a softer future, a softer world that just so happened to be a privilege of the elite. The root of this innocence was ignorance. Children needed to be protected entirely from the difficult world of adults. Most other children were living in a different reality because up until the Great Depression, as soon as they could pull a lever they became little adults. At the time, there were 2.5 million kids working sometimes six days a week, 10 hours a day in dangerous factories, and a third of all total kids were working hard hours on their parents' farm, with the girls sent away to be domestic servants or maids to the well-off. And then in the early 1900s, the progressive era began to prioritize workers' rights and the civil rights of oppressed groups, imagining a more equal and just world, rallying for the rights of children. As the Great Depression then desecrated the job market and the economy, kids were essentially pushed out of their positions by adults needing the work. Then, through a new post-war affluence, a new consumer culture, and the proliferation of public education and then suburbanization in the 50s and 60s, teendom became a brand new extension of childhood and a great new market for companies. The me generation, as baby boomers were once referred to, was the first generation at large to live with this thing called leisure time, which gave them an opportunity to extend childhood, to extend the play, to extend the imagination into their college years. But, true to their archetype, the teens pushed against their parents' values and found ways to enter the adult world as soon as possible. Hitchhiking away stoned as hell before they turned 18 to fight the war in dirty clothes, to create their own equally fantastical reality and lose all their Disney-fied inhibitions. As the me generation settled down and shed their prayer beads for ties, baby boomers had their own kids in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And as we've seen again and again on our show, these generations produced some of our most lasting moral panics centered on the corruption or the desecration of childhood innocence. Stranger danger, satanic ritual abuse, the sex lives of teenagers, drugs, these were all things that deeply disturbed suburban adults who took these apparent threats and turned them into an even more pressing need to protect even more militantly children and teenagers and even young 20-somethings from the adult world so riddled with its plentiful, fantastical dangers. Even as the generations grew more and more jaded with the far more ironic, sarcastic 1990s and 2000s, even with our gross-out cartoons like Ren and Stimpy and our adult cartoons like The Simpsons, we still swooned over Disney movies, we held back our tears, and we memorized the songs, some of which we can still sing to this very day.
1: There's a new town under construction called Celebration. The first residents are moving into townhomes, cottages, village and estate homes, and apartments in six architectural styles that, when blended with the town center, create a public experience, much the same as when you walk along Main Street in the Magic Kingdom Park.
0: Walt Disney's original dream of Epcot, his weather-controlled, timeless utopia, never came to be. But in the early 1990s, a place called Celebration, Florida, came decently close. Celebration was, and still is, a 10-square-mile American dream town, a kind of extension of Disneyland's Main Street, USA, a sparkling place where all the salespeople and other workers are called cast members. They have their own parks, pools, hiking areas, lakes, their own civic buildings, their own school district, everything within biking distance with special alleys behind the homes for garbage pickup to keep it out of sight. It was all planned down to the finest details, and the Imagineers had a hand in designing original stop signs, shop signs, fountains, golf course branding, trail markers, and manhole covers— The town seal featured, quote, a little girl with a ponytail riding a bicycle past a picket fence and an American oak with her dog running dutifully behind her. The official brochure stated,
1: There once was a place where neighbors greeted neighbors in the quiet of summer twilight, where children chased fireflies and porch swings provided easy refuge from the cares of the day. Remember that place? Now, the people at Disney, itself an American family tradition, are creating a place that celebrates this legacy. A place that recalls the timeless traditions and boundless spirit that are the best parts of who we are.
0: The demographics of Celebration in its beginnings, and they have improved since then, were overwhelmingly white, more than 90%. Though Disney did make efforts to increase diversity in celebration, it was still hawked as this nostalgic safe place away from the urban sprawl, a family-oriented America that was happy, free from conflict, and great. Walt didn't want anyone bursting this patriotic, weather-controlled dome of innocence, which, by necessity, must be accompanied by ignorance. But whose innocence was and is being protected in celebration when the median age is 41? In 2016, the town voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump, although the county and congressional district surrounding it voted against him. The early 90s were a booming time for the Disney Corporation, and alongside Celebration Florida, they had another grand vision in the works, something a little different.
1: A land so blessed in natural beauty, resources, and people, that she became the world's best hope. Come, take a look at her, Americans. Glimpse a nation's splendor, and be proud of your heritage.
0: Picture this. A school group heads out for the trip of a lifetime, a visit to Washington, D.C., to learn all about this great nation called America. It's the last day, and all the tourist spots have been checked off the list, except one. The one all the kids and all the adults, though they'd never admit it, have been waiting for. The group pushes at each other through the rickety turnstiles and into the 19th century Crossroads, USA, where they can experience the pre-Civil War era, staying at a themed inn, taking an 1840s replica train all over the park, and of course, getting your 1800s souvenirs, 1990s style. This is Disney's America. In Disney's America, the train would take people to a number of stops through the national landscape and history. And as you might imagine, things get, well, you'll see. In the theme park, a kid could fast forward 25 years and visit a Civil War fort, and with the quote, wizardry of Disney's Circle Vision 360 technology, even experience actual combat with authentic reenactments. Then they can head over to President's Square and honor the fight for independence and the founding fathers' messages. They can take in the Industrial Revolution through the factory town of Enterprise and even embark on a, quote, high-speed adventure through a turn-of-the-century mill culminating in a narrow escape from its fiery vat of molten steel. I want to go on that. You could visit a faux Ellis island and learn all about early immigration and its effects on national culture using The Muppets for some reason. At Victory Field, kids and adults alike can celebrate aviation and the heroes of World War II, where, quote, guests may parachute from a plane or operate tanks and weapons in combat and experience firsthand what America's soldiers have faced in defense of freedom. There's the state fair section with classic roller coasters and Ferris wheels with a vast background of rolling cornfields. And there's even an old-fashioned baseball field where all can relive the early days of America's favorite pastime. Hop over then to the family farm, which, quote, pays homage to the working farm the heart of early American families. Visitors see how crops are harvested, learn how to make homemade ice cream or milk a cow, and even participate in a nearby country wedding, barn dance, buffet, and all. But this sprawling Americana included some other sections that raised some serious eyebrows. Native America depicted tribal life before and during colonization. Quote, Guests may visit an Indian village representing eastern tribes or join in a harrowing Lewis and Clark raft expedition through pounding rapids and churning whirlpools. But here's where the controversy really got cookin'. In regards to the Civil War section, Disney Imagineer and park designer Bob Weiss made the mistake of announcing that, quote, We want to make you feel what it was like to be a slave or what it was like to escape through the Underground Railroad. As you might imagine, the pushback was swift and damning with environmentalists working against the 180-acre endeavor outside of D.C., and with academic historians launching a group called Project Historic America. One of the group members, historian David McCullough, said Disney's America, quote, would be an appalling commercialization and vulgarization of the scene of our most tragic history, and I would deplore it. An article that ran in The Nation rebuked Disney's poor history on American truth, calling it Mickey Mouse history. Disney's CEO at the time, Michael Eisner, thought the park could bring emotional stories of the past alive for the kids of today, and he didn't think the criticism was fair, quote, I sat through many history classes where I read some of their stuff, and I didn't learn anything. It was pretty boring. Eisner would defend the park by telling reporters that they had spent $100,000 on historical advisors trying to get the stories right. But regardless, the growing Project Historic America, which would eventually include famous documentarian Ken Burns, took out a full-page ad in the New York Times with the title, quote, The Man Who Would Destroy American History. The pushback had seriously surprised Eisner, who would say years later, quote, I expected to be taken around on people's shoulders. He has since expressed regret over some of these comments. David McCullough, who was then the president of the Society of American Historians, said of the project, quote, we have so little left that is authentic, that is real, and to replace it with plastic history is a sacrilege. Eisner's response, quote, the First Amendment gives you the right to be plastic. A couple months later, 3,000 people would reportedly march on Washington, chanting things like, hey, hey, ho, ho, Disney has got to go, with one sign reading, Mickey didn't free the slaves, learn the truth.
1: You'll want to see it again and again. It's Song of the South with Songs for a Nation, the picture all Hollywood is talking about. In this new Walt Disney full-length Technicolor hit, you'll thrill to the gay, heartwarming stories based on the tales of Uncle Remus. Be sure and see Song of the South when it plays your town.
0: This wasn't the first time that Disney encountered racial controversy while, in their own eyes, attempting to do the right thing. A song now synonymous with the Disney spirit itself, Zippity-Doodah, was first introduced through the jolly voice of Uncle Remus, the storyteller of the 1946 box office smash, Song of the South. Combining live action and cartoon characters, Song of the South would inspire many people's favorite ride at Disneyland, Splash Mountain, by popularizing the Black folk stories of Br'er Rabbit. The film follows a rich young southern white boy visiting his grandmother's plantation, where he befriends a black boy in tattered clothes who shows him a more fun, less buttoned up way of living, eventually leading him to Uncle Remus, who tells him stories and teaches him some nice lessons and does appear a lot like a slave living on a plantation. Though Disney's intentions were to soften relations between the races, all of it is very much in line with that happy slave trope that was so popular in the Antebellum South, with the stories of enslaved people smiling, whistling, joyfully and gratefully serving their captors, who always treated them with kindness and respect. The Disney Company was quick to point out that their intention was not to show a time in Southern history where slavery was still legal, but instead to show a plantation just after the Civil War, at a time when the enslaved had officially become hired help, make no mistake. However, there wasn't anything notable in the actual film to confirm this to the audience. No date flashed across the screen— And regardless of the specific date, it certainly showed a very fantasized, sanitized version of race relations, just like what Disney would do decades later to the story of Pocahontas. Unlike 90s CEO Michael Eisner, Disney was not unaware of the potential fallout from Song of the South, with Disney publicist Vern Caldwell writing to the producer Pierce Pierce that, quote, the Negro situation is a dangerous one. Between the Negro haters and the Negro lovers, there are many chances to run afoul of situations that could run the gamut all the way from the nasty to the controversial. It's almost as if these nasty people who were criticizing this wonderful Disney movie had a shared belief that a company that made its billions off of utter fantasy couldn't be trusted to tell us the truth. This innocence Disney wanted to create had to be, by virtue of itself, accompanied by ignorance. (laughs) Hiya, folks! It's great to see ya!
1: Oh gosh, you sure are sweet, just like Minnie! More
0: after this.
1: Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. And now, back to the show.
0: Let's talk about this American god, Mickey Mouse, because Lord knows the professionals of all stripes, in hopes of understanding his massive impact on culture, have broken this pleasant rodent down to his very atoms. We can refer to an interview with a seriously influential Disney employee and decades-long official portrait artist of Mickey, John Hench. Called the guru of Disney design, and actually an eventual dedicated Hindu, he saw the overwhelming cultural obsession like this, quote, There's power in that kind of arrangement of circles. Round forms are definitely more friendly. They recall a mother's breast and a pregnant torso and a baby's face and other good things. He even talks about ancient fertility symbols that look like Mickey Mouse. Harvard biologist Stephen Jay Gould wrote that Mickey is likely expressing a classic evolutionary theory that we are naturally prone to having our hearts melted by the features of infants— which then aids in the drive to care for and protect our young. Big eyes, a two-big head with chubby little cheeks and a little button nose and floppy, silly little movements. We love them! And this doesn't just apply to our own young. We actually want to protect the young of other animals, too, and thus we are obsessed with them. This is evidenced by the internet, which is about 90% kitties and puppies and little goats and little piglets and stuff. That Jungle Book thing is true. Animals do sometimes adopt stray infants of other species. Babies really are taken in by packs of wolves and raised as their own. In fact, the little puppies we take in have been Disney-fied for eons, starting as snarling wolves, with humans selecting the cutest, sweetest ones to breed until they finally became eternal babies— teacup poodles. The good characters, the animals, the children, the enchanted objects, or the cutified adults in the wonderful world of Disney always rely on these infantile traits, and they seem to hook us every single time. There are also biological feelings of powerlessness that come from not being able to help cute things, and in the case of Disney, help the cute things we're watching through the screen. This may be part of why when we watch Toy Story 3, where the animated toys hold hands and accept their deaths together in an incinerator, we weep audibly behind our 3D glasses in the crowded movie theater. You know what I mean. Disney guru John Hench certainly knew what he was doing when he was creating this Disney World psychologically speaking quote color is one thing people respond to it has its roots in very primitive times game was more plentiful when there was color than in winter time so we respond to that another related theory to this theory on cuteness can also help account for Disney's unprecedented success one called supernormal stimuli that we talk about in our episode called Poison Halloween Candy. In the first experiments conducted to test the theory of supernormal stimuli, researchers set up fake nests for a group of songbirds, ones that contained eggs that looked like their own but were much more overblown, much brighter with much larger spots. The team watched the songbirds choose to take care of the fake eggs over their own. These eggs were so large, in fact, that the birds slid off when trying to sit on top of them, only to climb on again and slip off again and then climb on again. Their own living eggs left untouched in their boring and dreary old nests. Decades of experiments on different animals have shown similar results, and psychologist Deidre Barrett has written about how supernormal stimuli can express itself through the supernormal taste of junk food or sitcoms like Friends, where the characters' personalities are what is supernormal. It's why we love theater and the movies, with these blown-out characters and this blown-out plot and these blown-out settings. And we definitely have to mention our super, super obsession with superhero movies here in the good old USA. Biologists think this phenomenon may be a result of eons of evolution that has valued ideal mates. And usually those that are bigger, brighter, and express more energy are seen as the superior ones. Disneyland and the Disneyfication of America and America at large have been popular topics of European philosophers. French philosopher Jean Baudrillard used Disney to talk about his theories on the simulacra and hyperreality. What he calls the simulacrum is essentially the replacement of the real with copies of the real with simulation. Similarly, hyperreality is a state where our consciousness can no longer distinguish reality from a simulation of reality.
1: Illusion is a general role of the universe, I would say. And reality is but an exception.
0: This hyperreality seems to be becoming the norm now and not the exception. Hyperreality is a lot similar to what we call theme. Las Vegas, adult Disneyland, is themed into areas, too. You can get so wasted, you can act like a kid again, and you can enter into that sloppy imagination. You can take a gondola ride through the Venetian, where an admittedly really cute man in a striped shirt lazily oars the boat and then serenades you. You can watch a whole pirate show at Treasure Island with water explosions and daring sword fights, and you can enter a replica of the Egyptian Sphinx, live out your three-day stay in a flashy carnival with a midway and rides, and all my favorite. And despite these childlike themes, Las Vegas is a place for the adult imagination. Even things as boring as highway shopping centers seem to be pointing to something other than themselves in the style of a Southern California Mexican storefront or a pastel suburbia or a European market. Nearby, the mall boasts an authentic soda fountain with big burgers and fries, an immersive trip back to Walt's beloved 1950s. Even small, unnoticeable things—our gas fireplaces, our wood paneling, everything at Pottery Barn, our well-kept lawns, our fake plants—that recreated habitat for tropical fish at the dentist's office. Look around. There is so little that is real that isn't, at least in some way, a plastic replica. Our fashion trends are recycled from the past again and again and again, and the hipster culture of the last 10 years has really been cultivating a themed existence. You're an old-timey barber this week, or a 70s guru dripping in beads, a 1920s femme fatale, or a 1990s grungy depressive, or maybe a blue-collar worker, sleeves cut off, chugging a PBR, and that was just last week for me. Have you ever seen a place of particular natural beauty? A place with beautiful, nostalgic architecture? Or a wonderful abandoned house? A place that makes you think, this reminds me of Disneyland. Or maybe a rare red sunset that makes you hold your own cat in the air like Rafiki and sing scream the butchered language of the opening song for all to hear. It really is getting harder and harder to distinguish whether art mimics life or life mimics art, and whether we care, and whether it's important at all. Our long march into softness and sweetness as a culture can be a problem sometimes, to be sure. But I think it's also what propelled us toward all the advancements that we've seen for civil rights. Because you have to be soft to care. Back to Disney's America for a second. Clearly, this was a pretty bonkers idea, one that 1990s culture and certainly our current culture would not have accepted. But Disney heads Michael Eisner and Bob Weiss did have some interesting intentions that are worth mentioning. Eisner was quoted as saying of the slavery representations, quote, We are going to be sensitive, but we will not be showing the absolute propaganda of the country. We will show the Civil War with all its racial conflict. Weiss said, quote, We are going to deal with real issues in the diverse population of this country, as it was defined through struggles, so you'll see some pretty rough issues dealt with in this park, as well as a lot of fun things you would expect to be a part of one of our parks. You will not see Mickey Mouse walking around in the Civil War reenactments, because he doesn't belong there. And Eisner promised to honor, quote, "...the gritty reality." But of course, as the park's general manager said, quote, We don't want people to come out with a dour face. It is going to be fun with a capital F. Over the last few years, there's been a loud and powerful movement to no longer Disneyfy our history by ignoring the brutality that's marked this nation forever. To no longer Disneyfy our present, to actually see what the structural inequalities are doing to our most vulnerable children and adults. And to no longer Disneyfy our future into a simple technological utopia, and instead see clearly the potential for catastrophes we haven't been trying hard enough to prevent. As pushback, there's now an equally loud movement to honor a far more plastic, patriotic past, present, and future. Those who want to keep it cute no matter what. And a lot of people do. That little girl I saw at Disneyland, the happiest place on Earth, America's own waking dream, was not laughing in the blissed-out land of imagination. She was in full-on tantrum mode. Sociologists and psychologists have pointed out, too, that our historical infantilization has also caused adults to take on the less cute parts of being a child. Impatience, explosive anger, good versus evil mentalities, a difficulty with nuance, a prolonged sensitivity, and a fantasy complex that can often choose flashy conspiracy theories over boring logical facts. That French philosopher, Jean Baudrillard, said it this way, quote, "'Disneyland is presented as imaginary in order to make us believe that the rest is real.'" That little girl I saw at Disneyland was choosing, violently, the supernormal Disney-fied fantasy over the real, She was literally slapping the truth out of mid-air. And now, the former president that Celebration Florida voted to elect has finally been banished from the magical kingdom. But the ghosts of a very different fantasy world that he constructed still haunt this American mansion. Now, in 2021, somehow... Truth must become as rewarding as fantasy. I believe that it is, as a former fantastical thinker myself who had to un so many of my beliefs. With all its possible terrors and all its exceptional ancient beauty, reality is as rewarding as fantasy, but Disneyland is also a truth. Somehow more American than America itself, expressing the fantasy of who we were, who we are, and who we will become. It will never be possible to find the irrefutable truth, but I think we all know how it feels when we get a little closer, when we start to wake up from our American dreams and from our own I'll probably never stop making my personal pilgrimages into the Disney world. But while I'm there, I'll pray to the long-term softening of our culture and the empathy that's moved us forward with each new generation. And I'll pray to the plain human joy of fantasy that our very DNA can't help but love, that I certainly can't help but love. But I'll light candles for the darkness too, the gritty reality, the ghosts who do not come alive again to dance with abandon. I'll sing a hymn too for the fantastical beauty of an actual butterfly landing accidentally on a big, bright, plastic flower, and then clumsily moving through the air, searching for a real one. This was American Hysteria. Next time on the show, I'm excited to announce that we are going to be hanging out with Sarah Marshall from You're Wrong About and Why Are Dads. We are going to be discussing all things dark Disney. It's going to be a fun one. We are on social media, on Instagram, at American Hysteria Podcast, and on Twitter, at Amer Hysteria. If you love our show, and you especially love me, then consider becoming a patron of our show. You'll get a full extra podcast that comes every two weeks called Walk With Me, where I'll go on a walk by myself or with someone else to all kinds of different places, talking about all kinds of different stuff. But a little bit more philosophical, a little bit more personal, what we've called guided meditations for people who do not like guided meditations. You can find the link to our Patreon in the show notes. If you can, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. That's a really easy and free way to support us if you like what we do and want us to keep doing it. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Sound designed by Clear Camo Studios, research and co-writing by Riley Smith, voice acting by Will Rogers, and co-produced by Miranda Zickler. Thanks, as always, for listening, and may you always find someone, another prince or princess or anyone in between who knows the same songs as you and will wail them with you out of key until you reach a spiritual, ecstatic state. Have a great week. No! We're going to do that again. (laughs) Oh, Oh, honey. We're going again.
1: Oh, my God. Friends, hello. I'm Mike Rugnetta, the host of Never Post, a new and independent news podcast about and for the Internet. In addition to bringing you the latest in current events, we try to figure out why the Internet and the world because of the Internet is the way it is. How did influencers destroy tween fashion? What is posting disease, and how do you ensure you don't catch it? From what device must one send important emails? We talk about what's going on online and ask together why. Why are we like this? Find Never Post wherever you get your podcasts.